number of years ago, I recall someone asking me, why is it that Oriental people tend to have narrow eyes? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, it's because so often they do rice again. Well, it's kind of the way I feel this morning as we come to our text in 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13. Trials again. Peter's going to deal with the subject of trials again. He has done so so frequently throughout his book. And returns once again to the topic of trials and suffering. It must be a very important subject. It's not a very popular one in modern Christianity. But we find that Peter... And James and the other apostles and indeed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ address this subject quite often. It is something that runs counter to our flesh. We don't want to have trials. We don't even want to talk about them or think about them if we can avoid it. It is a subject that is counter to much of popular Christianity in our day. It certainly is outside the realm of the health and wealth Theology that we hear represented very often on television and even radio. It seems to be quite contrary to the market-driven philosophy of church that is very popular in our day. But the fact of the matter is that trials are reality for all of God's children. And therefore, we need to be informed as to what the Bible says about them so that we can be prepared when we will face them, which we will, we must They will come inevitably. And so before he addresses this subject once again, Peter begins his address with that tender term, beloved. In verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This is only the second time in his epistle that Peter has addressed his readers as beloved. And I think this time he especially wants to use that term because he's dealing with a very difficult subject. And so he wants them to know that he is regarding them tenderly. And he is dealing with this subject in an encouraging way. He wants them to know that they are greatly beloved by Peter. They're greatly beloved by God. They're greatly beloved by the people of God. And yes, in spite of all of that, that is very true, they will suffer trials. And therefore, it's important that they and we have the proper attitudes necessary to endure our trials in a God-honoring way. And so in verse 12, we see three wrong attitudes toward suffering. And in verse 13, three proper attitudes toward suffering. First of all, three wrong attitudes. Verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Three wrong attitudes toward suffering, and they are, number one, to consider suffering a surprise. Number two, to consider suffering illegitimate. And number three, to consider suffering destructive. We should not consider suffering Surprising when it comes to us. Do not think it strange, as we are so prone to do, but do not think it strange. That word strange, which could also be translated surprising, 
is actually the same word that Peter used earlier in the chapter. In verse 4 of chapter 4, when he said of the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles in the world around them who regarded their lifestyle of righteousness, living for the Lord, as being very strange, very surprising. He said, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Just as unbelieving people find it strange that anyone would want to withdraw himself from the fleshly pleasures of life and live a life of dedication and commitment and righteousness unto the Lord Jesus Christ, that that seems very strange to them because they don't understand the rationale behind it at all. So to Christians sometimes we think the introduction of trials into our lives to be a very strange thing. Do not think it's strange. Do not think it's surprising. Do not be astonished. Do not consider trials to be some novelty. This is a present imperative. Do not continue being surprised. It forbids a continued reaction of this kind, which seems to suggest to me that Peter recognizes that God's people are very likely to be surprised initially, but we should quickly get over it. After you get over the initial surprise, and you've had time to reflect upon it and to consider it and to bring the truth that you know from God's word to bear upon the situation, then no longer continue to be surprised. You've got a different perspective than those who don't know the Lord and do not understand his word. And so initially we probably will be surprised, but don't continue to be. Don't live in that mindset. Don't continue to maintain that attitude is what Peter is telling us. And it's very important that we get rid of this particular attitude, this attitude of of continued surprise. Now, the question might be raised, why would we even be initially surprised? And I think there are some good reasons for it. It, first of all, may hearken backwards into our creation condition. Because all of us, I think, still have within us echoes of the original creation before the fall. And we were all created in the image of God, and we still bear many marks of that and many, if I could call it this, memories of that in us, even in our fallen condition. And, of course, in Eden before the fall, there were not sufferings and trials. That was foreign to God's original creation. That is not the way he made us in the beginning And therefore, the fact that we are suffering that now does seem to contradict somewhat this memory that we have of how we were originally created and what God originally intended to do with us. And then as we look into the future, we recognize that we have redemption expectations if we are the children of God. We realize that this world is under a curse, but the curse will not remain forever. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.21, or yeah, 8.21, when he said, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 
So we are living in a world that is filled with pain and sorrow and wrestlings and strivings, and that is not the eternal condition. That's not the way it was in the beginning, and that's not the way it will be someday, thank God. If we are Christians, we probably read Revelation 21.4, which says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's a glorious expectation, isn't it? That's a wonderful hope for the future, and we who know the Lord know that. We know that this is not the way it always was, and this is not the way it will always be. Thank God for that. These present trials and sorrows and sufferings are an intrusion into God's design, though even the intrusion we understand to be by God's design as well. But nevertheless, it is an intrusion into what God originally created, and it's an intrusion into what God is going to do with his creation before it's all over. And because we have these concepts, sometimes it is almost surprising when this suffering, these trials, come into our lives. And then you couple that with the cultural conditioning that we grow up with, certainly in the United States of America, it seems to tell us that the main purpose of life is to be happy and to have fun all the time and that pain and sorrow and suffering ought to be foreign and we ought to do everything we can to avoid it and really it shouldn't be here anyway and if God was a good God it wouldn't be that kind of reasoning. And sometimes that bleeds over even into the thinking of God's children and we begin to think that we shouldn't have to suffer, we shouldn't have to have pain, we shouldn't have to deal with these sorrows, and Peter says, snap out of that. That's the wrong attitude. Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And so the first wrong attitude is to consider suffering surprising, and the second one really is an extension of the first, and that is to consider suffering illegitimate. If we think If we're surprised by it as if it ought not to be there, then it's very easy for us to even go one step further and begin to complain and murmur as if this trial is illegitimate. It has no right to be here. It doesn't belong, and God shouldn't allow it, and it ought to be taken away from our lives immediately. But Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. As though some strange thing, some foreign thing. That could be translated. Some foreign thing has happened to you. Something that ought not to be in your life has somehow gotten into your life. It ought not to be there. And therefore, God, I expect you to remove it. Some would even go so far as to say, God, I command you to remove it. I demand you remove it. I command you in the name of Jesus to banish this sorrow and this suffering right now. It's not supposed to be there. It's not your will, O oh God, for it to be there. Oh, you haven't read your Bible, says Peter. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. And because we know 
the Word of God, we recognize that suffering is to be expected in a fallen world. And we do know that's the kind of world we're living in now, don't we? We're not caught off guard about the conditions of the world into which we were born and which we live in. This is a fallen world. And therefore, we are going to suffer the effects of the fall. Should that be surprising? Should that be strange? Should we think that that's illegitimate in a world that has been destroyed from its original condition by the sin of man in the garden in the fall and continues to be ratified by rebellious sinners who continue to shake their fist at the Creator and refuse to submit to His will? We live in a fallen world. And therefore, suffering and trials is exactly what we should expect. In fact, to expect anything else is really not thinking clearly, is it? To think that somehow we could live in a fallen world so touched by sin and understanding how great and enormous sin is in the sight of God, and then to think that somehow in a world like that we should not be affected by the curse, we should not be touched by the fall, that's crazy, that's strange, that's wrong thinking. So we shouldn't consider suffering surprising, and we shouldn't consider it illegitimate. And furthermore, we continue to read our Bible and we find out that suffering has been very much appointed to the people of God. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Isn't that another way of describing a Christian whose heart has been changed by the grace of God and who has been given new desires different from what we had before? Is it possible to be a true Christian and not have a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Of course not. And so this is saying everyone who has been changed by the grace of God, everyone who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, everyone who has been born into the family of God is appointed to trials. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That has been assigned to us. Do you remember what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 29? He said, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Two gifts of God, the gift of faith, the gift of suffering. You say, I'm sure grateful for the first one. I don't know about the second one. Well, they're both gifts of God, and anything that God gives is good, isn't it? So we need to understand that now. And we certainly understand that it's not illegitimate, is it, for a child of God? It's part of what it means to be a child of God. If we, by the grace of God, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have also been appointed to suffering and trials. It has been granted unto us to suffer. And so once again, the Bible is telling us that 
God-approved living does not prevent suffering in our lives. Where did we ever get an idea like that? That if we would live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, if we have a God-approved life, then there won't be these trials. But that's only for people who are not walking in obedience to the Lord. Show me that in the Bible. It's not there. What Bible have you been reading? The Bible says just the opposite. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer. It has been granted unto us not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. There's even a hint in Peter's text that he may be throwing the spotlight off of us, but onto those around us. It doesn't come across quite so clearly in my English translation. But when it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. That try you could be translated, which is to try those who are among you. Those who are in your midst. And of course, if you're part of the company, that could include you. In fact, it will include you at some time or another. But the point is that suffering doesn't come to all of God's people all the time. There are some who will suffer when others are not suffering and vice versa. Your time of joy may be the same time when someone else is experiencing sorrow. And your time of sorrow may be the time when someone else is experiencing joy. But here's the point. Don't be surprised when suffering comes upon those who are in your midst, those who are your fellow believers around you in the body of Christ. In other words, don't be like Job's friends. Don't think that something illegitimate has happened to them. And it must be because they're not living right. You know, we can learn a lot of lessons from the book of Job. And one of them that we can learn is about Job's sufferings and what brought them on and how he faced them and how he came through them. There's a lot of wonderful lessons there. And that book certainly teaches us that suffering is not foreign for the children of God. And suffering doesn't come to us because it somehow slipped through the fingers of God's omnipotent hands and caught him by surprise. Not at all. That suffering in the book of Job that was completely baffling to him. He had no reason for it. We know because God pulls back the curtain on it and shows what is happening in heaven. We know that it was permitted, yes, even designed by Almighty God. But another lesson we can learn from the book of Job is how not to act like Job's friends. Men that from all appearances were were godly men, were, were worshipers of the same God that, that, Job, that Job worshipped. In other words, in our day, we would say they were fellow Christians. And how miserably they ministered to Job. And they just couldn't seem to get it out of their mind that this suffering was not Job's fault in some way. They just couldn't get that out of their mind. And folks, we're made out of the same clay. And... We have come from the same fallenness, and there lurks in the corners of our mind, and sometimes not so lurking, sometimes pretty obviously there, the thought when our brother or sister is suffering a trial, 
That's because they've sinned in some way. I don't know what it is. I can't see it. I can't tell it. That's the way Job's friends were. Job, we can't see it in your life. We don't know what it is. But it's got to be there. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? must be this. They, They were quite sure that it had to be something like that. And Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which will touch others in your midst. And one of the things that God does, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but one of the things that God does in our trials is to sort of dislodge us of that, of that uh, propensity to start pointing the, the nya, nya, nya finger at others when they have trials. It's easier to do that when you haven't had many. It's a little bit more, um, you have a little bit more compassion a little bit more understanding about the trials of others when you've had it. When you've been through those trials and you can't find any obvious link between the trial and your relationship with the Lord, though none of us have a perfect life, none of us have a perfect relationship, we can always find areas of need in our lives, but you can't find any anything that would seem to be an obvious reason why God would be chastening you, correcting you. It's just a trial that God has brought into your life. When that's the way you feel and you realize that some people around you are acting like Job's counselors and they're saying, must be something in your life, must be something in your life. That'll make you a little slower to do that the next time that trial comes in somebody else's life. Don't be like that. So wrong attitude number one is to consider suffering surprising. And wrong attitude number two is to consider suffering to be illegitimate. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 20? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We're not... Greater than Christ, why should we expect to be spared trials more greatly than Christ, is what he's saying. And the third wrong attitude is to consider trials to be destructive. And this is why I think we dread them so much, because we feel that in some way they're going to harm us. They're going to destroy us or destroy something in our life. It is, after all, as Peter tells us, a fiery trial. That means it's painful. That means it hurts. It's a fiery trial. Not just a a trial, a fiery trial. So don't think it's strange concerning the, the little trials that come into your life, of course, but Peter is talking about the big ones, the, the really painful ones. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And what Peter has in mind here is the refiner's fire. We know that because he already introduced the subject clear back in chapter 1. Peter talked about trials in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Every, every chapter so far has dealt with trials in part of the contents of that chapter. And notice how Peter introduced this for the first time in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, Seems like he's talking about the same thing that we're looking at in our text in chapter 4. Then verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is 
tested by fire may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That introduces the idea of suffering for the child of God and tells us what kind of fire Peter has in mind. He's talking about the refiner's fire, that fire that is used to separate the dross from the gold, that fire that is used to to strengthen the gold and to remove the impurities out of it. It's not a destroying fire. This isn't the kind of fire that catches your house on fire and burns everything to the ground and everything's destroyed. This is a controlled fire. It's in the refiner's furnace, and he's controlling it very carefully. He turns it up to just the right temperature, no more, no less. He confines it to a particular area, no more, no less. He brings into the the uh, the, the place of that fire, into the the heat of that fire, only those things that he wants to be brought into it. It's all carefully controlled by the refiner. That is by our God. And the point is that this trial, this fiery trial, therefore, is purifying, not destructive. It doesn't destroy us. It doesn't even harm us. That is, the us that lives forever, the us that belongs to God, the us that is the child of God that we are, the new nature that we are, the only thing that it harms is the things that shouldn't be there anyway. And that's good. That's good, isn't it? Now, the reason why we don't welcome this is because we've come to love the things that shouldn't be there too too often, haven't we? That's the problem, isn't it? We want to hold on to things that we know we shouldn't be holding on to, but we like them because we aren't completely sanctified yet. We've still got the remnants of the old Adamic nature there, so we're holding on to things that we should not be holding on to, and we won't let go. And God says, but I know how to, I know how to encourage you to let go. I will bring you into the refiner's fire and I'll turn up the heat. And guess what? Your hand pops open and the impurities are removed. And that didn't destroy you at all. In fact, it made you stronger. It made you more valuable. When the gold is purified, it's more valuable. It goes from gold ore to refined gold. It goes from... 10 karat gold to 12 or 14 karat gold or whatever. The the fire is good for the gold. It makes it stronger. It makes it more valuable. The fire is good for the child of God. It's a refiner's fire, carefully controlled by our Heavenly Father, the great refiner. It's good for us. It strengthens us. It removes the impurities. It makes us more valuable, more valuable for Christ, more valuable for eternity, more valuable in all that really matters. That's... That's the only thing that the fire does. It only destroys the things that need to be removed anyway. And it, it helps. It, it strengthens. It makes better all the things that last. And so it's a wrong attitude to consider the trial to be destructive. If we won't get let go of that attitude, then we're going to have a real problem with this trial. If we won't hear God, if we won't hear His Word, if we won't let God speak to us in this, we're going to have a real problem with this trial. 
Because all we can focus on is my loss, my pain, my disappointment, my suffering. Hey, God says the trials don't destroy us. They don't hurt us. They only remove what needs to go anyway. The quicker you let loose, the quicker the fire can be reduced. The quicker God can take you out of the furnace. Let go. In other words, believe God that the trial will always have a positive outcome for his children. Always. 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 The trial will have a positive outcome for the children of God. This is another way of saying Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And therefore, trials are not something to be avoided at all costs. It's only when we're ignorant of the true nature of trials and what God's word says about them that we fail to respond properly or when we refuse to accept what God has taught us. But you see how important it is to have a knowledge of God's word? If you're going to respond to the trials properly, you need to understand what God says about them, what he's doing with them, what their nature is, what they're designed for. If you are ignorant of all of those things because your Christianity is being played out in a Bible-less world, as a lot of people's Christianity seems to be, then you won't have the foggiest idea why this trial came into your life, and therefore you won't know how to respond to it. And you'll probably have to keep repeating it over and over and over again. So let's remove these improper attitudes. But number two, let's let's develop proper attitudes. Verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. And the three proper attitudes are, number one, to consider suffering as a cause for joy. Number two, to consider suffering as a means of growth. And number three, to consider suffering as an instrument of focus. It's a cause for joy. Verse 13 begins with that word but. And this is a very strong um, form of the word but in the Greek language. The strongest possible one. It's a strong contrast. In, In contrast to this attitude of thinking it's surprising, thinking it illegitimate, thinking these trials are here to harm you. Instead of that attitude, here's what your attitude ought to be, but rejoice. Well, that's going a bit far. It's one thing. It's one thing to not be surprised and not considered illegitimate and to recognize that God has a good purpose in it, but come on now. Isn't this going a little far, expecting me to actually rejoice? In the trial? But that's what Peter says, and he said it before, and he's not the only one. It's an imperative, this word rejoice, which means it's a command, not optional. Peter doesn't say, you know, my recommendation would be that you might just try to work up a little rejoicing here. That would help you a great deal. He said, this is what God wants you to do. This is what God commands you to do. This is your responsibility. This is your instruction. Rejoice. Now, that's a strange response if you don't know the Lord and don't know his word. 
If the, if the Gentiles around you think it's strange that you don't run to the same riot with them, they're going to really think it's strange when you rejoice in your trials because they can't understand that at all. But you can, can't you? You're, you're a child of God. You can understand that. And why should we rejoice? And how can we rejoice? What's the key to this? Well, what Peter's telling us is that these kinds of trials are a mark of our Christian identity. Why so? Well, they're a mark of our Christian identity, number one, that we should even be targeted for this kind of anti-Christ persecution. Back to the words of Christ again in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Peter obviously has primarily persecution from the ungodly in mind as the main form of trial that he's dealing with here. But he's telling us that when we get targeted for this kind of persecution, that means we must be a real child of God. The world loves its own, but it hates those who belong to Christ. If you're being targeted for persecution by the world, what does that tell you? It tells you, I must be a genuine Christian. The world must see Christ in me. Maybe they see more of Christ in me than I see in me. But I'm being targeted for persecution by the ungodly. What does that mean? That means I belong to Christ. Furthermore, that we would be willing to suffer for Christ's sake means that we're a child of God. Remember the apostles in Acts 5.41, after they were greatly persecuted... We read in verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Does anyone doubt whether these men were genuine followers of Christ? If they are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Does anyone say, I wonder if Peter and John are genuine Christians? Listen, anybody who is willing to rejoice because they suffer shame for his name is proving that they are a true child of God. The ability to do that, the desire to do that has to come from the Spirit of God. So if you have that, what does that mean? I'm God's child. Where else did that come from? I think I'm beginning to work up a rejoice here. I'm beginning to see it. I'm beginning to understand it. I see why I can rejoice. And there's a third reason. We are joined to Christ in His sufferings. We all know Philippians 3.10. Paul said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. There's a lot in that verse, and I'm not sure I understand it all. But I think I see it in a slightly different light than I ever did before. Because what Paul seems to be saying is this. If I am joined to Christ in his death and resurrection, which I need to be if I'm going to be saved, that's the definition of being a Christian, is being in union with Christ in his death and resurrection, so that when Christ died, I died. And my penalty, therefore, is paid before the judgment bar of God in Christ. And when Christ rose from the dead, I rose, which means I have everlasting life in him. But what 
Paul is saying is this, if I am going to be joined to Christ in his death and his resurrection, I will also be joined to him in his sufferings. We don't pick and choose. I'll be joined to Christ in his death, thank you, and his resurrection, thank you, but not in his sufferings, thank you. No, you won't. Package deal. Package deal. And if you are experiencing, evidencing that you are joined to Christ in his sufferings, then what does that mean? That means you must be joined to him in his death and resurrection. That means you're a true child of God. Glory, hallelujah. I'm beginning to rejoice here. Because that's what really matters, right? When this passing world is done, what will really matter? That I belong to Christ. That's all that will matter. My trials will seem so small in that day. In fact, what Peter seems to be saying is, the more we suffer for Christ, the greater our ground for rejoicing. A little bit of suffering, you might say, well, was that really suffering for Christ or was that something else? When you have a lot of it, it becomes pretty clear. And so then all of these things that mark us, that identify us as belonging to Christ become very, very clear. And the more we suffer for Christ, the more we can be sure that we belong to Christ, the more we know we're going to heaven, the more we know we have that eternal inheritance that is that is a promise to us in the Word of God for the, all those who belong to Christ. And therefore, bring it on. The suffering's coming. Bring it on. I'll just rejoice all the more. I'll have all the greater assurance that I belong to Christ and I'm going to be with Him forever. Bring it on. Secondly, we see suffering as a means of growth. It is, after all, as we've already seen, the refiner's fire, a purifying flame. It does enlarge our fellowship with Christ, as we saw in Philippians 3.10. These kinds of trials show us our weaknesses and needs in a way that we could never see them otherwise. These kinds of trials enable us to better empathize with others. We read in 2 Corinthians 1.4, God who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. When we have gone through trials and have received the ministry of God's Spirit to our soul, have had the promise of God's Word applied to our soul, then we are now better prepared to reach out to others who have similar trials and minister to them to become God's instrument in comforting them. We can only do that when we have been through these kinds of trials. So suffering is a means of growth. Suffering enables us to minister with greater knowledge. Knowledge of our own sufferings and therefore knowledge of other people's sufferings and the knowledge of God's word that our, that our path of suffering has, has uh, crystallized in our soul. It enables us to be more patient with others' slow progress in sanctification. When we haven't had any trials, we sometimes think ourselves to really be something as a child of God. When we start getting dragged through through the fiery furnace and uh, refined in the refiner's hands, we begin to realize that we're not nearly as, as great a Christian as we thought we were, that we've got a whole lot more wrong within us than we thought. We've got a lot of dross. We, we have a lot of, lot of beams in our own eye. And then that makes us so much more patient toward our fellow believer who's also struggling on the path of sanctification. 
So suffering is a cause for joy is one proper attitude, and suffering is a means of growth is another proper attitude. We can, we can embrace suffering for these reasons. And number three, suffering is an instrument of focus, to focus on what's important, to focus on the future, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Rise again, yeah. Trials again, yep. Second coming again, yep. Peter is talking about the second coming of Christ again. He talks about it, I think, more than anybody else. Again and again and again. He points us to the second coming of Christ. And the indication is that our eternal reward is proportionate to our earthly suffering. Have you ever thought about that? How much reward do you want in heaven? It will in some way be proportionate to your suffering upon earth. Now, we tend to think of it only in terms of proportionate to how, how much we've done. You know, we're so, we're so um, um, merit-oriented and work-oriented. And that's all part of it. I don't want to want to erase that. But we need to realize that there is a direct proportionate relationship between the degree of suffering and the degree of reward. Isn't that what Christ was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for what? Great is your reward in heaven. The greatness of the reward seems to be related to the greatness of the suffering. Blessed are you when you are greatly persecuted and when you suffer a lot. Why are you blessed? Because great is your reward in heaven. That's why. And our exalting joy at Christ's return seems to be in proportion to our sufferings. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with Exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. That's a word that means jubilating joy. It has the idea of skipping, bubbling over, shouts of delight. Someone said after your sermon last Sunday when you mentioned about the amens, it was a whole lot quieter Sunday night. I didn't notice that. But listen, I don't mean to discourage you from saying amen at the appropriate place. I just don't want you to... to, uh, uh, start disrupting everything around you. But, but a good amen at a point of truth is a wonderful thing. We, we ought to be bursting out with joy and shouts of delight. And that's going to happen when Christ returns, every one of us for sure. But the degree that we do it seems to be related to the degree of our suffering, according to verse 13. There's a, a, a relationship, a proportionality here. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, you may also be glad with exceeding joy when he returns. The more you suffer, the greater your joy. And that joy, according to the present tense in the Greek language, is a joy that continues forever. How greatly you will rejoice forever in heaven is going to, in part, be proportional to how greatly you suffered for Christ Upon earth. Now that puts these sufferings in a whole different perspective, doesn't it? They may not be so bad after all. We may be like Peter. You know, the Lord's washing the disciples' feet. 
gets around to Peter, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Well, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. Ah, oh, in that case, wash my head, my whole body also. Maybe this at least gives us a little bit of understanding where we can say, Lord, you got any more trials for me? Because I see so many things, so many good things are related to my trials. I don't really fear them as much anymore. I don't really resent them as much anymore. I'm not so sure that I don't want more. I, I think maybe it would be good to have some more. If you're beginning to think like that, you're beginning to think like Peter was thinking. You're beginning to think like Christ was thinking. You're beginning to think like the apostles were thinking, who counted it all joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And one final word. I remind you of Christ's word in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Better to suffer with Christ now than to deny him now in order to avoid suffering And suffer eternally at his coming. Those who are unwilling to suffer with Christ now will suffer then. Those who are willing to suffer with Christ now will rejoice then. Think on these things and may God bless them to the health of your soul. Shall we pray? Well, Father, we confess that we do not eagerly embrace trials. We confess, O Lord, that we have had at times the very attitudes toward trials that you tell us in your word not to have. Forgive us. Help us. Teach us. Be patient with us. And Lord, teach us your ways and show us your paths We pray.